it seems to me appropriate, almost inevitable, that when that great imagination, which in the beginning formed the whole world of nature, submitted to express itself in human speech, that speech should sometimes be poetry. For poetry too is a little incarnation, giving body to what had before been invisible and inaudible. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 64, Conspiracy of Light, After Hours with D.S. Martin. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favourite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season we've read The Four Loves, but we're currently in Poetry Month. And the quotation at the start of this episode was from Reflections on the Psalms, where Lewis notes that God saw fit to express himself in the Bible through poetry. So far this month, we've mostly looked at Lewis's own poetry, but today we're going to be looking at poetry about Lewis. And we're doing this with poet D.S. Martin. D.S. Martin is a Canadian poet, series editor of the Poema Poetry Series, and poet-in-residence at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. His poetry has appeared in many publications around the world, such as Canadian Literature, Christian Century, Dalhousie Review, Event, Irish Times, Practical Theology, and Queen's Quarterly. He is involved in Poems for Ephesians, a poetry web journal for the McMaster Divinity College website. He is a participant in The Rabbit Room, and he also blogs at Kingdom Poets and The 55 Project. He and his wife Gloria live in Brampton, Ontario, and they have two adult sons. He is the author of Angelicus, Ampersand, Poema, and So the Moon Would Not Be Swallowed. But the main reason he's here today is to talk to us about his 2013 book, Conspiracy of Light, Poems Inspired by the Legacy of C.S. Lewis. D.S. Martin, welcome to Pipes with Jack. Thanks, David. It's great to be joining you. I first heard about you through our good friend William O'Flaherty on an episode that he published a while ago about the 2018 Taylor Colloquium. And off the strength of that, I bought your book and promised myself that if we ever finally got round to doing a poetry month, that I definitely have to have you on the show to talk about it. Now, today, I'm finishing off some alcohol that we had left over from our sidecar cocktail Patreon event. I'm drinking Courvoisier Cognac. You drinking anything? I'm drinking a uh, Newcastle Brown Ale. Oh, oh, I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So in the introduction, I named some of your books and some of your projects, uh, but can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? How exactly does one become a poet? <laughs> I suppose it might be better to say how being a poet might overtake someone. In my case, it was a slow process of discovery, discovering who I am by temperament, by interest, by skill, by what delights me, and even by my limitations, which are numerous. I would almost say that I was predestined to be a poet, but not quite. To be truthful, I believe that we each have been given specific skills, and through them we develop certain passions. C.S. Lewis was ideally suited to be an academic, but if he had missed that train, he would have still found some other way to make a living in which he would have made sure he was able to spend a lot of time reading and writing. I do feel called to be a poet. That is, I found that the person I was becoming and the path I was on and the call to faith in my life all worked together. Being a poet became the right choice for my inner life and outward expression of my faith and philosophy. I mean, do you mind telling us a little bit about your early encounters with Lewis? Uh, which did you first enjoy, his prose or his poetry? Well, I came to Lewis's poetry much later. Actually, what I read first of all was his fiction and his books of Christian life and, the and thought. Actually, I really should share with you from the introduction or the preface to Conspiracy of Light because I go into significant detail of just exactly what your question was. This is what I said there. When I consider how my light advanced, it is most fitting that C.S. Lewis should be an important focus for my poetry. All these years after his death, Lewis remains one of the most influential popular writers of our age, which is a paraphrase of what Alistair McGrath said at the 50th anniversary. The first reason for this book, however, is that C.S. Lewis is one of the most influential writers of any time period on me. 
There was a time in my youth when I would buy and read any and every book I discovered by C.S. Lewis. What I had found was that he wrote in such a way that engaged my mind like no other writer. He was respected in a variety of fields and held passionately to his faith in Christ. Years later, when I began rereading his books, I was surprised to find many of the ideas that I held as my own had been planted there by Lewis. It's true that not all of his arguments stand up as well as I had earlier thought. Despite the imprint of the era in which he wrote, there's a timeless wisdom in his writing, and that continues to enrich any who are open to it. So when I was rereading Lewis, I was also reintroduced to his exceptional skill at presenting ideas through analogy. Many of the poems in this book began with the poet and me taking a Lewis word picture and pushing it in one direction or another until it took on a life of its own. So that's basically how I came about doing this. Hmm. I'm interested, how would you rate Lewis as a poet? Because I've heard some people say, well, he's not that good. Um, I enjoy it, but I'm not exactly a connoisseur. Um, C.S. Lewis has written many fine poems, but I would never say that poetry was his strength. Perhaps he had just had too many other strengths to be able to dedicate himself sufficiently to develop himself as a, the poet he wanted to be. And that's what he really wanted to be was a poet, but he was so good at so many things and so called to many things, I don't think he was able to dedicate the time to it that it would take. So you think had he been given more time to mature his his poetic craft rather than being distracted by every other single genre and kind of writing that he produced, you think that he could have been truly great? That's a really good question. It's kind of like saying if uh, Europe still thought that the world was flat and no one discovered North America, what would it be like? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's just that's such a big question. I mean, the first thing I should mention is that Jack had read so much of the great poetry of past centuries and he absorbed it with flabbergasting ability, knowing it so well that sometimes when he went to write his own poems, he had trouble writing as a 20th century man. He wasn't just a formalist in his poetry, but almost a displaced Elizabethan. This made it hard for him to write for a contemporary audience. I think of even greater significance, though, is that what the best poets do, from my perspective, is provide places for the readers to reflect on images, truths, experiences, and ideas, so that they, in turn, experience them for themselves something of what the poet is presenting, feelings of discomfort, of curiosity, sorrow, distaste, delight, wonder, whatever. And of course, especially empathy. So of course, the poet wants to bring the reader along with her to encourage her reader to embrace what the poet considers to be important, but the reader's responses are not to be forced by the poet or the poem will become sentimental or didactic or cliche. And my take on Lewis is that too often he tried to use a poem to win an argument <laughs> to convince his readers of what the appropriate response was to what he was presenting. Now, that works beautifully in his essays or in his books, you know, such as Miracles, The Problem of Pain, or, of course, at his debates at the Oxford Socratic Society, right? But it doesn't work quite so well in poetry. What do you think are some of the shortcomings of his poetry? And... Conversely, what do you think he's really good at? Where are, where are his strengths? I think I've already expressed what I felt his shortcomings were. Now, to talk about Lewis's strength, of course, they were legion. He was, as I've already hinted, one of the most skilled readers this world has ever known, possessing such a grasp and memory of everything he read and having clearly formulated his thoughts on what he'd read like he had such an amazing skill for finding analogies, as I've mentioned. And this is what prodded me to write poems inspired by him. So again, he, his shortcomings, he wasn't a 20th century poet and he was rather trying to win arguments in his poetry or trying to convince people of things. Whereas in a book that's designed to do that, you know, mere Christianity, nobody picks it up and says, oh, this book's awfully didactic. 
Well, what did you expect? <laughs> you know, that's what it's intended to be. No one go, shows up at a debate, you know, at the university and says, oh, this guy on this side of the debate is being didactic. Well, that's what a debate is. Poetry is a different beast. And although he did write some really good poetry, I do find that the large scope of his poetry just wasn't as strong as he was in so many other areas. Hmm. Yet you also cite that what you think he does best is in the analogy, is in the imagery that he uses. And that's actually what I would say, that's what makes his prose stand out. And I'd say that's actually what makes works, didactic works, like mere Christianity, not come across as just dry philosophy and theology, because he gives you an image to think about as he's unpacking an argument. And I think he does that better than anyone I can think of. And I think that's another reason why so much of his works are timeless. I know that's a cliche term, timeless. But if I could only apply it to one person, I might just apply it to Lewis. Hmm. I mean, he said that what isn't eternal is eternally out of date. Uh, yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you think he's written some really good poetry. If you had to recommend one poem to our listeners, what would it be? Um, I particularly like some of his poems, such as Caught, uh, his poem Prayer. And do you know in which collection you typically find these? Is it in his uh, in the collected works that Don King put together? These what I'm reading from is C.S. Lewis poems. There's another book which are his um, narrative poems. These are more the lyrical ones, um, and this is the um, the Harcourt edition. One of my favorites is As the Ruin Falls, where he talks about all my flashy rhetoric about loving you. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about your book, Conspiracy of Light. You're clearly a big Lewis fan, but what was it that prompted you to write a book of poetry about C.S. Lewis? Well, what prompted me was I just picked up Mere Christianity again and started rereading it. And of course, Jack was a big believer in you don't just read a book, but you reread books. You go back to them and you revisit them. So, mm. so when I jumped into mere Christianity. It had been many years since I'd read it. And as I mentioned before, what blew me away were his analogies, but also just how much of my own head was there. Like so many of the things that I was thinking had been things that Lewis had taught me. Hmm. You know, I, I, I obviously had thought that I was smarter than I am, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, having such a good teacher, why not? Eh? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I find the very same thing. I find myself putting across a thought and then realizing I've just paraphrased something out of miracles. <laughs> uh, to whom did you dedicate this book? This book is dedicated to Robert Siegel. And he's a fine uh, American poet. Um, I had edited his final poetry collection, which is a new and selected it was to come out in December of 2012. It didn't actually come out till January of 2013. But Robert Siegel hadn't let me know as I was editing with him that he was actually dying of cancer. So he passed away in December of 2012, didn't actually have this book land in his hands. So um, I feel honored to have been able to, to work with him. He was a great, great poet. And... Um, I think Lewis would have liked him because he very much uh, he was very whimsical in many of the ways that Lewis is. Now, in Poetry Month, we have started learning a little bit about some of the different forms of poetry, such as the sonnet. How would you describe the structure of the poems in your book? Well, I do include one sonnet in, in the book, and it's called In Search of Shakespeare. I mean, I'm not a poetry formalist particularly, but... I mean, if you're going to write a poem about Shakespeare, doesn't it make sense to write a sonnet, you know? Yes. Um, although you're setting yourself up to uh, be compared, so maybe I shouldn't have done that. But um, many of my poems do have end-stop rhyme within them, but most of them you would describe as free verse. I love to play with the music of poetry, though. I think some people who probably like Lewis were troubled by the new um, modern styles of poetry in his day was th that I think a lot of the poetry didn't had lost some of that music. I love the music of internal rhymes, of assonance, of alliteration, 
onomatopoeia, parallelism, all kinds of different approaches to things, um, just to play through the lines. That's So I think you'll find as you read my poetry that that's exactly what you find. Hmm. Plays to the ear. I heard somebody describe, maybe it was Andrew, but I heard somebody say that this was one of the things about the way that Lewis wrote with a dip pen, that as he was writing, he was sounding out what he was writing. So he was not only writing for the eye, but for the ear. Absolutely. And all poetry is written for the ear. If um, when I'm teaching poetry, I'm doing a course right now at Redeemer University, and I tell my students, re read your poems out loud as you write, write them, read it out loud, because you'll pick up on the sounds, what it sounds like, how it flows. Those things are extremely important in poetry. Hmm. Now, where did you draw inspiration for all of these poems? Because there are allusions to all of Lewis's corpus. <laughs> Was it literally that you read a book and then you thought, I've got to write a poem for this? I just I just dove in and I just was reading through all of the works that I have and I just got so totally taken over by it because once I'd started I just found I was onto something exciting. It, to me it was just exciting to be able to take someone as as deep and profound and genius and these those words all sound cliché when you're talking about anybody else don't they? But when you're talking about Lewis you know, to do, to, to have him basically over my shoulder sharing all his wisdom, and I just wrote poems about the cool stuff he said. I mean, what, what a great <laughs> inspiration. Back in season two, when we were doing The Great Divorce, as we were going through each chapter, I would write a little haiku, trying to encapsulate something of that chapter. And it's perhaps not the most advanced of poetic forms, but it was one that stayed with me ever since school. And I definitely found that as I was trying to condense a chapter's worth of beautiful, soaring, transcendent prose uh, into a very simple, uh, very simple poetic form, it, it did cause me to ruminate over what the heart of that chapter was. Did you did you find something similar as you were as you were trying to put pen to paper to try and capture some of some of these books? I wouldn't say I was trying to take a chapter and summarize it. Often I would just take. I'd read a chapter and I'd find there were a number of things that stood out to me and any one of them or all of them could turn themselves into poems. Sometimes, and this won't surprise you knowing Lewis, sometimes I would be reading something and it'd be inspiring me and I'd go, there's something about, there's something like that in Narnia. There's something <laughs> like that in, you know, because all the things he was thinking kept coming through in his fiction. So... Mm. It was just fascinating there as well to to compare as you know and to play with it and just to be inspired by the uh, the wisdom of this man. Mm. Now let's talk about the structure of your book. I'm an engineer, so I like to talk about structure. Uh, it's divided into seven parts. How did you group these poems? Well, it'd be cool if I said one for each of the Narnia Chronicles. Eh? <laughs> however, however. Um, what I did is the very first section is based on Lewis's life. See, this the book is called Conspiracy of Light, Poems Inspired by the Legacy of C.S. Lewis. So it's not just what he wrote, but everything about him. So hmm. the first section is about some things in his life, ranging from his childhood right through to the death of Joy Davidman. In the, the second section expands on some of those powerful analogies that we were talking about. And there's more of them further in the book as well. One section focuses on his fiction. I didn't don't write a lot of poetry inspired by fiction. It just it doesn't work quite the same way for me. But I with such great books to choose from, I was able to find some interesting things. And I have one section about his fiction. There's another section that deals with Lewis and other writers, things he said about other writers or Interaction. So there's a poem about with that relates to Coleridge, a couple about Milton, one even about Beatrix Potter. So I found that by doing this, putting them in those groups, it kind of made the book flow more smoothly from one poem to another, rather than uh, jumping around more. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of these poems. And I do have to note that it wasn't until I'd nearly finished the book that I discovered at the end your notes and acknowledgements section, where you offer a few explanatory comments about each of the poems. 
but that was okay because it actually did make it quite a fun game as I was reading through trying to work out the inspirations for each of the poems. But let's talk about your poem, The Longing, in part one of your book. Classic Lewisian theme of Zenzucht, of joy. Uh, would you mind perhaps reading it for us and telling us a little bit about it? Be glad to. It's called The Longing. It came to him, staring toward the Castlereagh Hills from an upstairs window. It came to him from a homemade toy garden in the lid of a biscuit tin. It came from the sight of steamers down below in Belfast Low and the sound of a ship's horn at night. It came from the interior space of the rambling house his father designed, rooms filled with books and long book-lined passages leading to empty sunlit places, books piled in the attic and too deep in the bookcase on the landing, where the distant sounds of pipes of gurgling cisterns and of the wind's breath would wind through corridors to find him beside the comforting fire. It came most, perhaps, from the loss of his mother, first through dire illness and finally through death, the longing for longing, the desire for desire. I don't, I mean, anybody who knows Lewis's story, I think, already understands what that's about. I mean, the death of his mother was such a significant event in his early life that the echoes of it never ended. And I I think that's very related to the longing that he had um, that was so important to him. And you're playing there on one of my favorite passages in Surprised by Joy, where he's describing his house. Uh, but I loved the contrasting of of cold and warmth in it as well. And particularly the line where you talk about the, the distant sound of pipes. I grew up in England and some of our houses are big and creaky and I can almost I can almost hear it as I'm sitting by the fire reading a book and hearing it's like gurgling at a far corner of the house. Well, my favorite book of Lewis is The Great Divorce. And I mentioned earlier that that season I tried to write a haiku for every chapter. Uh, and so since uh, this was my own poor poetic effort, and since it's my favorite book, uh, we really should talk about your poem of the same name. Absolutely. I would say when it comes to fiction, this is the one where I really tried to take a book head on. It's such an amazing book, so I totally agree that it's it's such a great book, such an insightful book. But anyway, I'll dive in and read it for you. The Great Divorce. None of us believed it would go well when we received the invitation. How could our darling heaven concede to marry hell? Despite Blake's best intention, it began with inferences of fighting and ended with hell citing irreconcilable differences. (laughs) The sky was bleak and drained grayness into the streets in the form of drizzling rain, yet grew no brighter. Walking through the suffering city, I turned the thermostat down on Dante's inflammatory images. I found no errant popes buried headfirst, bare feet burning in the air. No one at all, just dreary tenements and abandoned warehouses, empty freight yards and neglected shops. I walked on, my coat getting wetter. The stained twilight never altered. And if this was the bad sign of town, I never saw anything better. Finally, people, just this side of night, forming a miserable line down at the bus station. I joined the queue and waited for the first bus leaving town. Such bickering made me wonder how they could stand on the same street. Imagine, much later, disembarking where the air is bright and the foliage richly green where we, the grim travelers, seem transparent smudges against sky and trees, gray ghosts unable to bend grass beneath insubstantial feet, the landscape more expansive than our closed-in little solar system, the grass solider than on Earth. Travelers with a knack for finding trouble in paradise cling to the known, 
Old men refuse a doctor's advice. Horses run back to the burning barn. They turn to board the bus, returning safely to the gray. I love this one so much. And it's not just because I think it's the best book. You capture so many of the ideas that are going on and you add your own images to it. Like old men refuse a doctor's advice. Uh, and the horses run back into the burning barn about the foolishness of the ghosts going back, as you refer to it, as safely to the grey. Thank you. I also particularly liked the references to Dante turn, turning down the heat and not finding popes buried headfirst with their feet burning. <laughs> yes, Lewis would appreciate references to Dante. Mm -hmm. He was definitely a fan. And you might even have caught the slight allusion to uh, great Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn in the words, Grim Travelers. Oh my goodness. No, I didn't. That, that completely went over my head. I'll leave that one for you. <laughs> so, for example, with this poem, how did you decide what to include? Because it's not just one image or one idea. You're farming from across the entire book and and riffing on each of those ideas. A lot of it comes with writing and trimming and changing and chopping things out and going back to the book and looking through again and again, finding the images that work, taking some other images. Again, it's been a while since I wrote that one, but sometimes certain images seem to just be, maybe might be too much like a previous one or um, just to try to capture certain things of those characters. I was trying to you know, capture the city before, you know, before they go on the bus and to capture, you know, basically I was trying to do it from the, capturing their experience, but kind of from the perspective of the one watching them, because that's the perspective that Lewis had, right? Yeah. A line which struck me was when you refer to my coat getting wetter. It was something that I'd actually not really thought about because I had seen the theatrical play and that you don't you know, see the rain. And when you're reading the book, you forget about this sort of perpetual drizzle that is in the gray town. And so it was something that I realized that as Lewis, as the narrator, is spending more and more time in the town, uh, this he's imperceivably getting uh, more and more grumpy and wet and, and sodden and, um, for want of a better word, infected by this gray town. It was something I'd never really thought about until I read this poem. Thank you. Again, it's a matter of spending, just spending time dwelling in the book. I can't say that I've, I think that I've done as well with any other fictional book as far as putting it to poetry. Maybe because Lewis was, it was just so deep where he was going. It's not just a story. It's not just a parable. You know, there's so much happening. And I think it also helps that you occasionally borrow a turn of phrase, uh, in The Great Divorce, he talks about the solar system being an indoor affair. So when yes. you reference it, I also then think of his prose, and that, that catapults me even further into, into the experience. It's an amazing concept, isn't it? Just that, mm -hmm. that, that phrase is just like, wow. So, of course, when I come across something that makes me go, wow, of course I want to steal it. It's all good poets, too. <laughs> exactly. Well, last season, we went through the Screwtape Letters, so let's talk about The Shove and Tumble, a poem that's been written from Uncle Screwtape's perspective. Now, when Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, and he later wrote a preface, he said that nothing came more easily, but he really didn't enjoy it because he had to sort of empty himself of all truth, goodness, and beauty. Everything had to be raw and dirt and sweat and grime. Did you have the same experience when you were writing a poetry in his place? I would say no, but that's because I was not dwelling within the brain of this evil being for an entire book. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote one poem at, for this collection, and that's this one, The Shove and Tumble. Um, interestingly, my new poetry collection, which just came out this past year, is called Angelicus. All of the poems in the entire book are written from the point of view of angels. And it's interesting that you mentioned it because I was going to say that none of the poems in that book are written from the point of view of demons. They're all from, from heaven's angels. And part of it was just what you said, what Lewis had said. He just felt it kind of 
ominous, this thing about staying in that mindset. So I was writing, I wrote my new book all from the point of view of Heaven's Angels, which was much more pleasant experience than I'm sure what Lewis went through with screw tape. Um, interestingly, I do have another screw tape poem, which I've written since this collection. So I mean, if we have time, I'll read that one for you as well. Uh, that would be great. I have one question first, though. In Angelicus, yeah. did you feel any pressure or difficulty trying to write from the angelic viewpoint? Because in one of the prefaces to screw tape, Lewis says he tried doing that. He tried to write from the angelic point of view, but he said that everything about it would just have to drip of heaven. And he basically said, no man is good enough to be able to write like that. Well, I didn't find it that hard because basically I took my sanctified imagination and I tried to look at the world. I didn't try to be an angel. I tried to look at the world as they would see it. Hmm. So everything they're looking at, they're looking at it through the perspective of heaven. So as they're looking at people and we're just doing ordinary things, in some cases, it looks pretty meaningless when you compare it to heaven. So I have poems where angels are kind of ticked off when angels are portrayed the way we sometimes portray them. Um, babies. I, yeah, exactly. I have one I actually refer, you know, make that reference, you know, just look at, looking at the world as, as an angel would. What is important? What would be important to an angel as they're, they're looking at our world, they're looking at people. And I found that quite easy. easy. Maybe, maybe Lewis was trying too hard to be the angel, mm. you know, or something like that. But I, I found it quite easy to write those. In fact, I could have kept going. Um, people who have reviewed the book wondered, how on earth did he get an entire book of poetry about angels? And then when they read them, they realized, oh, yeah, this is just happening. This is not a problem. <laughs> well, would you mind reading The Shove and Tumble? And we can see yeah. what Uncle Screwtape has to say. Exactly. Um, the Shove and Tumble. If you allow him to grow humble when he fumbles, hint he should be proud of his humility. Like a shadow examined under bright light, it will have died. Praise him so he stumbles on the pride of beating his pride. Our game's loud rumbles hide the wide world's concerns and turn his eyes to futility. Humility boasts and mumble shame. If a man knew he had great ability, a gift of grace, he could be humble and not even know it. If he shoved the idea aside, if he shoved the idea aside, he could be a poet, if unafraid to tumble into mysteries embrace. It's one of the funniest parts of the Screwtape Letters. When Screwtape says, your patient has become humble, have you pointed out this to him? <laughs> yes. And I loved the comparison, like a shadow examined under bright light, it will have died. Thank you. What did you mean in the last section where you say, if he shoved the idea aside, he could be a poet, if unafraid to tumble into mystery's embrace? I just sense that, I mean, it's, it seems probably from most people that, and it's true, one of the most, it must be, it must be a very audacious thing to be a poet. You're basically saying, look at what I've written. You know, you should pay attention to this. But in reality, the more you spend time with poetry, writing poetry, you find that you're just the guardian of the words. It's not actually you. It becomes a submission to the art form, a servant of the art form, as Madeline Lengel would, would say. So maybe just the fact, too, that, okay, you work really hard to become a poet. You, work, you find great success in it, and 10 people have heard of you. You're not going to be really proud of that are you you know you've got a fan base of 10 you know i mean there's just <laughs> there's just that that's just some of the things about the uh, about the art form in some ways it seems like you have to be very proud to be a poet but in many ways if you're really proud you'd abandon that art form pretty quickly yeah it seems to be an invitation to a kind of self-forgetfulness and an embracing of the more classical idea of the muses who will move through you would you like me to share that other screw tape poem? I would love you to do that. Yes, please. So this poem I wrote after Conspiracy of Light. Actually, it was inspired 
for me by having uh, attended the colloquium in uh, Indiana. So I thought I would write another Lewis poem. This is called Screwtape Visits Your Local Costco. <laughs> My dear underlings, today's lesson in devilry springs from recent consumer trends. How to bend them to advantage. How to make bread a stone about your patient's neck that will send her scampering to own the latest rage. Yet let her defend every cent she spends and every selfish inclination of her heart. An oversized shopping cart is a good example of strategy, but let not us not overlook opportunities to stir anger and envy in the parking lot. Make her take offense at a stolen parking spot, begrudge the trudge from her distant place, then slip a blonde's new convertible effortlessly in the closest space. Consider such ample examples as gorging on free samples, pushing past shoveling senoritas to grab the latest club pack of 10 pizzas, and of course the pride of the smart shopper who deserves the best. She does not live by bread alone, but make it exclusive. Be creative, my young demons, and be ready to reference the seven deadly sins for the final test. I love the line, begrudge the trudge. <laughs> I think I I need that uh, on above my windshield as I'm as I'm driving. Don't begrudge the trudge. <laughs> <laughs> so was this inspired by a particular Costco trip of yours? No, I wouldn't say so. I just um, mm, think you're lying. <laughs> just try, just trying to just trying to picture what in our society would be, and I wanted to be very modern, you know, beyond Lewis's time period. So I wanted to take something contemporary and go, okay, how are, what is it, in our, what are the things, some of the things in our society that would uh, please Uncle Screwtape? Hmm. So that, the particular possibilities within our big box stores, particularly Costco, kind of felt inspiring to me. Absolutely. I actually now live in a town where we don't have a Costco and occasionally the wife <laughs> and I just hold each other and, you know, wipe away a single tear. <laughs> <laughs> As I mentioned in the introduction, this season we've hosted an Apologetics Month, and I was delighted to see that you'd also written a poem about apologetics. And Lewis's poem about the apologist's evening prayers, easily one of my favorite things that he, that he ever wrote. Was, was, was there anything in particular that was driving you to write this particular poem? Well, probably to answer that, I should probably read the poem, and then we'll go to it from there, just a sec. Okay, this poem, Apologetics, begins with a quote from a singer-songwriter named Pierce Pettis, a song that says, When you start to doubt if you exist, God believes in you. Apologetics. I am because I think, Descartes declared, and so perhaps some people aren't, or barely. I mourn the slow disappearance of others, my parents, both in their 90s, their lives shrinking, silty white patches motionless beneath the trees. Reality settles in shadows. A bare twig snaps underfoot. One misstep, and we misunderstand, though one day all will come clear. Professor Lewis had Professor Kirk profess just three options, truth, lies, or madness, but sometimes we're mistaken or misunderstood. And besides, who gets half of what the parables say? Sometimes we just have to close our eyes and step out of the boat, look along the shimmer path and follow across wave and trough, never mind what we think we can prove. Does the cat chase her tail when she sees it move? Or does it move when she tries to catch it? Aristotle, perhaps the prime prover to suggest a prime mover, goes deeper than chickens and eggs. As I try to convince the flightless they too can fly, despite the theological leap from nest into midair, I stand under more than I understand. I sit under shade that defies comprehension and try not to lie. There's a fascinating history of apologetics that runs through history, the history of philosophy. And in the 20th century, 
the desire to prove intellectually the truth of Christ was strong. And of course, perhaps no one was better prepared to make such article arguments than Lewis was. All of the great proofs for the existence of God tend to get bogged down in circular arguments, which still require a little faith. Maybe less faith than, faith than disbelief, but still a little faith to accept. I don't want to pretend that I have deeper insight into this than C.S. Lewis did, but I believe that God has not given us watertight proofs because these are not the things which would build the sort of faith he desires of us. And I suppose that's partly what I'm getting at in that particular poem. Hmm. There's a, a limit to rational proofs. There's a limit uh, to rational discourse. And there still requires a certain stepping out into the unknown. Now, it can be one done with confidence, one done in faith, in trust, given everything else that you know. But there still does require that extra something. When we were talking about the faith chapter in Mere Christianity on the podcast, I compared it to when I went skydiving. Rationally, I knew this was a safe thing to do. I think it's air, tra air travel by itself, even before we jumped out of a plane. I think something like 90 times safer than driving a car. Uh, and I knew the school had an excellent record, etc., etc. But still, when I was standing there at the edge of the plane, getting ready to jump, uh, it didn't matter how rational things were. Part of me just wanted to you know, go hide in the safest part of the plane as far away from that door as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, I think apologetics are useful for people as individuals for themselves, but I'm not convinced that they're, at least in the, by the, in the 21st century anyway, they're that useful for us to try to convince people that they should become Christians. Hmm. The way I've always couched it is that apologetics is more about removing obstacles. It's you've presented something and objections are raised, and you then try and respond to those objections and clear, clear those things out of the way, like John the Baptist, prepare the way so somebody can then mm -hmm. walk through themselves. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if, I'm not saying that those objections aren't legitimate, but I think a lot of the time those objections are there for the purpose of being obstacles. You know, sort of like a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Particularly when you realize that the consequences of a certain truth claim are going to be far-reaching particularly into your own life and the choices and things that you can and can't do and obligations that you now never knew you had. It's maybe a self-defense mechanism. Well, as you mentioned before, Narnia makes an appearance in your book, poems like What Lucy Saw and The Parliament of Owls. But since this season's chronicle, we're reading through The Horse and His Boy, incidentally, my personal favorite. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Among the Tombs? Oh, I think what I found here, again, Often, I found trying to write poems out of the fiction, it was harder to do that because you're not going to retell the story, although I think I, I did quite well playing with it in The Great Divorce, but I'm not going to try to retell that story. So it's a matter of painting a picture, creating a scene, showing that to try, you know, to invite somebody into that scene. Actually, you mentioned about the, in the back, the notes and acknowledgements, one of the main purposes I wanted to put in there really wasn't for people like you who would enjoy the game of figuring out what inspired, which, you know, which, what thing inspired each, each poem, but for people who are coming to it with only a, some familiarity with Lewis to be able to, or they, if they liked something in one of the poems, they could then find out where it came from and then perhaps go back to Lewis to discover, mm -hmm. you know, the root of where a lot of that came from. I mean, I personally think a lot of my best ideas came from Lewis anyway, so I may as well get people going back to Lewis to think, to see what he said. So if someone were to read one of my poems and like that, and then find it came from, say, Miracles or Mere Christianity, then they might go back to that book and read that book. So I, I did, I, I tried to identify where in those books those things came from too. So people would be um, drawn to do that. So, of course, this is different. This is about, about The Horse and His Boy, which is a great book. Um, so I'll read it for you now. It's called Among the Tombs. In the desert, after nightfall, each sound seems louder, each stark tomb larger. Their gaping, hollow mouths exhale darkness into the darkness. 
You follow the large, silent cat, whose eyes glint in the moonlight and hint of inaccessible secrets. He stares northward across desert sand while you place your back to his eyeing your fear. Conspicuously absent are the companions supposed to meet you here. So much of what you understand is not what is, like the strange dreams you fall into with your sleep. I love the atmosphere on this one. Uh, you chose probably my second favorite scene of the book. My favorite is when Shasta is is riding and we find out that, that there is a large creature next to him who turns out to be Aslan. That's my, that's my all-time mm-hmm. favorite of all of Narnia. But uh, th- this one is a close second as he's there among the tombs and trying not to think of ghouls. I particularly like the line, uh, their gaping hollow mouths exhale darkness into the darkness. It's almost like it's, it's blacker than black. It's darker than dark. It's something evil and malevolent. Yeah, that's what Shasta's feeling there, right? Mm-hmm. Now, as we wrap up, we must talk about the poem which is inspired by this season's book, The Four Loves, and it's called Extrapolations. And I will absolutely admit that when I first read this, I didn't recognize which book it was from. <laughs> you beat me. Well, it is more a sparse poem, so that's, uh, so that's probably why. Extrapolations. Long grass sways. Pine branches swing. Cumulus clouds race across the sky. Imagine we see more than these things, even the wind itself. Imagine our love is more than a grimy reflection of something greater. Dust swirls in a sunbeam. Imagine we see more, even the light itself. Imagine our analogies and extrapolations are more than somewhat like that. Now, when I first read this, I thought you were referring to meditation and a toolshed. Because you have those similar ideas and the similar themes of of light and being able to see by the light and almost looking along the light. Would you mind unpacking what inspired this poem? Well, Lewis, as we mentioned before, doesn't just touch on a concept once and then it's gone. We often find things recurring in his work and there's certainly the element about that we, it isn't the light we see. I mean, it's, it's not that we're, when we're looking to see, to see the light, it's not really the light that we see, but we see everything else by the light. That's kind of where this is going. Also, of course, our analogies, Lewis's was full of analogies. Mm-hmm. And to say that, imagine our analogies and extrapolations are more than somewhat like that. That as you think about Lewis and some of the things he came up with, they're, in many ways, they're more than just mere similes. Some are, you know, they're very powerful and deep in where they're going. So hmm. that ties in with his discussions with Barfield. We had a no in Barfield month last season, and we dipped our toe into what Barfield wrote about language. And he was a man who believed that words had power. Words did things, they achieved things. The comparison I sometimes give, it's not great, but when a minister says, I now declare you man and wife, you become man and wife. Something's actually happened through those words. And I think that was one of the big things that Barfield taught Lewis, if he didn't know it already, is the power of words and what they can actually affect and cause particularly after Lewis ends up embracing the religion that believes God spoke his word, and it was. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that declaring is more than just words. It is actually a, a legal act when you're talking about a, a wedding. When you pray asking for God's forgiveness, you're doing more than just using words. You're laying your soul out before him. Words are powerful and in many ways I wonder if we would be able to do so many things without having words to take us there. Hmm. Wow, that's profound. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And as I hear the call for final drinks at the bar, uh, could you please tell us uh, where can people go to find out more about you, 
pick up a copy of Conspiracy of Light and tell us about some of the other works that you've published. You've mentioned uh, a few today. Sure. Um, I have been very blessed to be able to publish quite a number of, of books. This is not normal in the poetry sphere. I mean, not unless you've got a lot of connections and somehow I've just been very, very blessed to be able to do that. My first full-length book, Poema, came out through Whip and Stock, and then I, through that I've been able to be the series editor for the Poema Poetry Series, which through which I've published more than 30, 35 uh, different collections of, diff- of some of the finest Christian poets out there. So I'm really privileged with that. Conspiracy of Light was my second full-length book, and I've had two since then, one called Ampersand, where I reflect a lot on... Uh, different people, different characters, uh, a lot of poems written from the perspective of various people, um, whether it's Martin Luther or Martin Luther King or, you know, all kinds of different people or just people in my own family, just taking on other people's points of view. And then, of course, the new book is Angelicus, which I'm really excited about because I'm able to to look at the world in a unique way. And I really am pleased with uh the opportunity I've had to do that and what, what's accomplished in that. Um, I am just, um, just ran out of words. <laughs> <laughs> I think that has to happen even to poets. It does. It does. Don, thank you for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. I hope this has whet your appetite to pick up a copy of one of Don's books. And perhaps you haven't read much poetry before this little mini-series that we've done, but I hope that will change going forward. So I'd like to thank all of the listeners, all of our patron supporters, and particularly our top-tier supporters. That's Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David and Rowdy. And please follow us on social media. Perhaps share a link to this interview and maybe a few lines of one of your favorite poems. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and MySpace, of course. We're bringing it back. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.